Welcome to House Money, the podcast that turns dreams into deeds in the world of real estate investing. Together, we dive into the strategies, successes, and stumbles of everyday people who are new to investing, as well as insights from seasoned subject matter experts. This is where your journey to financial freedom begins. This is House Money. Welcome to House Money. My name is Richard Jones, your wealth creating realtor. I'm a real estate agent with Presidio Real Estate, the GDP group in Draper, Utah, outside of Salt Lake. So glad you have found us and so glad you're here for this episode. Really an episode I've been looking forward to for a long time, especially with the current environment we are in with interest rates going up. I'm happy to have my guest here today, Jesse Van Wagner. He is the branch manager and loan officer at Castle & Cook Mortgage, headquartered here in Draper. And uh, Jesse, welcome. I'm glad we could finally do this. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to be able to be on your podcast. That'd be great. Uh, tell us a little about who you are, kind of how you got into business. You have a business or a background in in real estate, per se, from a different side of things. But kind of tell us who you are, uh, what you're doing right now with Castle & Cook, and then we'll, we'll dive right in here. Yeah. So as you mentioned, uh, Jesse Van Wagner, I'm a, a producing loan officer and branch manager for uh, Castle & Cook Mortgage in my Draper, Utah branch. Um, I've been in the industry about eight years, um, coming up on close to a thousand transactions. Uh, previously to this, I was actually a general contractor. Um, had the joys of being outside and in the sun a lot. Ended up getting melanoma skin cancer and decided to start using my brain instead of my body. And uh, here we are. I've been, you know, a blessing in disguise. And and you really you use your brain a lot. We 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 offline we we will talk about real estate and strategies and and products. And basically until one of our wives tells us to get off the phone, right? Like we'll, we'll, we'll talk numbers and data all day long. And that's, and that's kind of why I want to have this conversation. Um, particularly as we're talking to new investors and as, as the, as the markets have shifted dramatically in the last year and a half, where we've had to get a little more creative, uh, particularly with investments on, on financing them and making it work. And so I'm, I'm glad we could do this. Um, let's, let's start with the elephant in the room. The biggest question people have that I get asked a lot by my investors and online and all the different things is, how do I buy an investment property right now? Like, what are the, how do people do it? Like that, that's the question. So give us, before we jump into different strategies, give us an idea, like where, where are we right now from an investment standpoint? What should investors be aware of? How should we be interpreting or processing the information that we're getting about, you know, interest rates? Yeah. I mean, it's obviously, it's where it is right now, right? It's, it's what we are up against. We also know that, you know, obviously the economics are going to dictate this and it's going to dictate it for a while. You know, we might see these rates in this market for the next potentially few years. Nobody has the crystal ball to know where it's going to go. But strategically, there's also, you know, a lot of, of value in potentially looking at those opportunities right now. You know, I'm, it may be more than ever before, very specific to being prepared, being ready and having that opportunity hit the market. Right. I mean, what house is it? What location is it? And you need to jump into it. You need to jump into it um, and be prepared. And so we've got to have the financing options in place. And it, you know, there's a lot of strategies, as we've mentioned. You know, ways to be able to obviously look at different uh, loan programs and ways to be able to qualify. Um, but when we look at it, you know, you can get hypothetically a primary rate of what someone would have uh, if it was a primary occupancy. You can do that uh, on an investment purchase. But at the same point, you know, there's obviously costs, things like that, that are loan level price adjustments that factor in from the conventional agencies that dictate um, or offset that risk. But that being said, a lot of that can be also offset by, you know, if you are in a position with liquidity and, and capital to be able to put a little bit more as far as down payment goes. You know, I mean, you can get into a conventional loan with an investment purchase for as little as 15% down going Fannie or Freddie. Um, and in that scenario, you know, 20% is better, 25% is even better than that. And it, and obviously those pricing adjustments 
you know, get smaller as you put more money down because it's less risk, right? It's this big combination of all of it. But there's a lot of angles and approaches and ways that I think that you can become an investor without even potentially purchasing an investment property, right? I mean, we kind of bounce from our primary residency, turn that and convert that and likely the two and a half or the 3% interest rate that we're handcuffed in joyously that we have that. But at the same point, you know, how do you leverage? How do you position yourself from one property to the next and, you know, find ways and tactics that you maybe otherwise haven't thought about to be able to get into an investment or to become, um, you know, or build, start building a portfolio. I think, yeah, you brought up an important point there. Like we, I think we have a lot of, a lot of um, potential accidental landlords in property right now. You know, people who bought their first home or their current home last couple of years, they're, like I said, they locked it in their 3% or maybe less on their interest rate. And maybe they weren't planning on being landlords, but man, like what an opportunity for somebody, right? You're, you basically have an inflation busting interest rate and payment that you can use now as an asset that maybe we don't need to sell that. Maybe we shouldn't sell that house. Maybe that becomes our investment property and we go look for a primary residence, you know, whether, you know, we can talk about strategies there too, but I, I think, I think people need, need not discount the importance of looking at, should I keep my current house? rather than trying to sell it and get every single dollar out of it to go buy the next one, where maybe we can make that work with, we'll talk about some financing things here in a minute here, but maybe I can make that work with the cash flow I could get from my departing residence to put down maybe a smaller down payment on one I'm actually going to live in. Well, you're I, exactly. I mean, why put 20 or 25% down? I mean, when we look at potential return on investment, it's the least amount of money you can put down to obviously acquire that investment. And so in the scenario, you know, when you really look at it, hey, I'm going to go sell this property to go buy this house. Well, if we don't do that, one is how much is the, is the principal being reduced on the amortization, right? That in itself is something that I think that's oftentimes overlooked. That in addition to the fact of, you know, where is appreciation and where does it go? Again, nobody has a crystal ball to know where that's going. But this is also one of those things where, man, this is a screaming deal. Man, this is a market where because of higher interest rates, sellers are struggling to sell homes as quickly. So now you can get an amazing deal. You can take advantage of obviously all the benefits and seller concessions and different benefits that we can put towards a better you know, loan setup for you. And you can do all this in a primary residence with as little as 5% down, right? If we want to go conventional, maybe even less, depending upon where our income thresholds sit. But you know, there's a lot of options and angles that we can go as far as financing to be able to get into it and transition. And at this point, you keep that 3%, right? And when you look at the amortization of a 3% versus, say, a 7.5%, you're putting a significant amount more towards the principal, Um, basically putting that money away, paying the balance down, it's money in a piggy bank. And on the flip side, if if the property is, say, worth $500,000 and you're appreciating, let's just say, at 5%, which I believe is actually a little lower than what's expected in 2023 mm-hmm. in Utah, I think it's somewhere around 6.8% appreciation is I think what Fannie Mae is, is anticipating. Mm-hmm. Um, and in doing that, you know, all of a sudden you're compounding that appreciating 5%, that's 25 grand, you know, in that scenario, which is over $2,000 a month, plus the money you're setting aside and you have somebody else paying for you, right? To do that. And you just step into obviously these new properties. Now, if that doesn't work or we want to, you know, we don't have the money to transition into the new property, there's access. We have, I think right now going on 13 different second mortgage products that can pull out equity out of your property in as little as five days um, or your standard full documentation process. But those are in, you know, home equity line of credit where you have variable rates or even in fixed rates. 
right? So that you're not subject to obviously the Fed's adjusting short-term treasury rates, which is obviously going to impact the variability of where those uh, you know HELOCs can go with variable rates. Mm -hmm. Okay, I've got my I've got my current house. Rich and then talk to me about maybe I don't want to sell it because I do have a three percent rate and maybe it's a good property to keep. Okay, but how do I pull money out of it because I don't want to like refinance because I don't want to like jump from three percent to seven percent. So where how how can I unlock that equity in my current house to go maybe buy an investment property? Or can I you know what can I do to use the equity in my current house to then go buy the investment property? Yeah, and and again it can go I mean incredibly fast because the the one thing I think that's always an interesting thing is it's like. Hey, there's this opportunity. We're talking about investing and someone's like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then they drive around the corner from their house and they're like, oh my gosh, there's a house. And now mm -hmm. it's like, I was moderately interested and now I have to move and run as fast as I can. Right. So in that circumstance, you know, as I mentioned, you know, as little as five days, we have a fully automated system that can run and pull equity out of your current home. Um, you know, you can actually be financed as it, whether it's your primary residence, second home or your investment property, which is unique because a lot of a lot of lenders, banks, institutions that have historically provided second mortgages are no longer doing it um, or they're not doing it on investment properties. Right. And of course, if you're departing that current home, needing the equity out of that property, it is going to be considered your investment property because you're no longer going to live in it. But we have access to be able to tap into that, right? Obviously, the higher the credit, the lower the, the combined loan to value, which is the combination of your first and your second mortgage together. Those are all, you know, ideal scenarios for us. But the beautiful thing is that you don't need to lose the 3%. You don't, you know, say you take a second mortgage at a 8 or 9 or a 10%. It's only for a fraction amount of money, right? So it's not this magnificently massive, massive payment, um, and you're only leveraging a small piece. Obviously, pay that thing off, pay it down. And the beautiful thing is that any moment in time, you know, say a year, two years, three years down the road, the market completely shifts and changes. You just refinance the second mortgage. You're not touching that first mortgage at all in any way. Um, mm -hmm. and, and really, the process is pretty similar to that of, you know, your standard loan, your standard refinance, if you need to do a full documentation loan. Um, but there's a lot of different ways and a lot of different programs that are being created right now because a lot of people have the golden handcuffs, the golden handcuffs of a 2 or 3% interest rate. They're not going right. to get out of it. And it's silly to do that, truly. I mean, when you've got a $1,500 mortgage payment, say you go, you go and tap, you know, $50,000, $70,000 and say you have a $500 second mortgage. You're $2,000 all in, right? Now you've got, say, $2,500 in rent, so your $500 cash flow there. You're throwing an extra $600 of your, your payment goes towards the principal. Now you're at $1,100, hypothetically, and the appreciation that continues to go. I mean, if you can do this and you can start compounding this and learning how to leverage and carry all these different scenarios, bounce from house to house to house, or buy investment properties, you know. I think the, the least read portion or the, the least read form in the, in when you're closing on a house, you know, you got the stack of paperwork there, the least read portion is probably the amortization schedule, right? If it's 30 years and 360 payments, people aren't skimming through five, six, seven pages looking at each of these payments. But if you really look at that closely, particularly with someone in this, you know, 3% interest rate, the bulk of the interest, no matter what your interest rate is, the bulk of the interest on the amortization schedule is in the first three, four, five, six, seven years. I said, if, if you bought your house and you, you've been there a couple of years and you have a, essentially a free rate, you know, 3% is basically free money, and you've already been there a couple of years, your, your principal payment every month is substantial for what your total payment is. 
Yeah. Like you said, like why, why would you sell that house when you're, you already got through the difficult part of paying the interest on it and you're paying a little bit of interest every month. I, I get that. But the bulk of your payment is now going towards principal to be able to keep that house and throw the cash flow at it or whatever it is. You get in this, this, this scenario where you're, you're going to pay that house off probably quicker than 30 years. And if you don't, at least you know that the money you are putting towards it is going towards the principal rather than the bulk of your payment going towards interest, which is what you're going to find yourself in just buying a brand new property at today's rates. And, you know, you're going to pay, you know, the bulk of the interest in the next seven years rather than, Hey, I, I've already crossed that bridge. I've already done that. Yeah. Let's make this, let's make this the long-term hold asset. Yeah. And, and I think it's important to, I mean, the way that I always have looked at business and I think the, the reason why I've been blessed and successful in the way that I've done it is that I don't just look at this transaction. Right. We don't just build things off of this transaction. It's built off of this with a full anticipation game plan of what does this take us to next year, five years, 10 years, 15 years and into retirement and potentially even generational. Let's talk about some of these strategies that are maybe more um, less traditional, not not to say less risky and certainly not illegal, but less traditional than I put down my 25 percent. I get my loan and I'm on my way the the debt service coverage ratio loan, the DSCR loan. Yep. Um, tell us, tell us how that works. I think that's interesting for a lot of people, like I said, who, who make a lot of money, but maybe don't show a lot of money on their tax return. Yeah. And it's always, you know, bewildering to them because all of a sudden you'll get, you know, have a conversation and they're like, what do you mean? I make a million dollars a year. I'm like, actually on paper, you make 50,000, right? right? Um, which is a beautiful thing, but because you didn't have to pay taxes on a million dollars, that's two, three, four hundred thousand dollars Where's that mm -hmm. money? Well, it's in my checking or savings account. Awesome. Seasoned as well, I'm sure, because it's been there for yeah. two months. So in that, the DSCR, debt service coverage ratio, is essentially that the, the rents offset the monthly payment on that mortgage, right? Ideally, in the most ideal scenario, you're looking for a one-to-one -one ratio. So if your mortgage payment's a thousand, your rent's a thousand, it's a one percent or one-to-one -one ratio, everything's you know, perfect. And that's how it's factored out for qualifying. You can be as low as 0.75% or have your rent basically three quarter of the mortgage payment still qualify. But that's essentially what it's looked at, right? You've got your contract, you go under contract, you've got your loan amount. Um, we, we get a rent schedule, which whenever we do an appraisal, we get a 1007, which is a rent schedule back. And it states what the fair market rent is going to be on the market. We take that, we look at that as it correlates across to that monthly mortgage payment. And as long as we fall within those ratio spectrums, that's how we qualify, right? Yeah. Commonly, no, they're no going to require verification, no, no, no asset verification, like this property covers the mortgage. Great. Yep, exactly. And we've used this uh, multiple times and, and even a delayed finance cash out DSCR mortgage, which I know is a, a big, a, a lot of words there, but specifically um, in, in a market that I've had somebody really take advantage of a lot of these loans um, down in, in Texas and in El Paso. You know, yeah. we're in a spot where Utah is a, a unique state. We have a very strong economy, one of the strongest economies in the nation. Um, also by a growing population, obviously significantly created by, you know, um, we have a lot more children. You know, the average age in Utah is significantly lower than most states. And in that, we have a massive housing shortage, right? Like if you can invest in Utah, we can build a portfolio there. And a lot of people are going rural, right? Central Utah, we talked about that as well. You know, my old stomping ground, Price, Emory County, Central Utah, those areas, um, you know, you can get into properties, obviously, for a, a lower price point, um, but yet they're still renting. You know, the El Paso scenario, that gentleman that was doing that, 
he said, Hey, I got a hundred thousand dollars. I'm going to buy this house, but I need to get that money back. Cause I need to do some reno. I said, perfect. Go buy it cash. There's no leaner title uh, or lean against the title in any way. Um, we did a delayed cash out refinance where we pulled all that money back and it instantly had it back from about a week after we closed on the actual cash transaction. And then he used that to go and purchase the next one. Right. And in doing this, He's bought about seven different properties, I believe, is where we're at now. And he actually specifically on these are four beds, two baths, four beds under Section 8 housing, is able to get about $1,400 a month in rents there. And again, this market's very unique to have to, to do this in, but those properties only cost $100,000 to $150,000, right? Mm -hmm. When you put the numbers together, you know, if you're you know, eight, nine thousand dollars a month in total payment, you're cash flowing, you know, 40, 50 percent of what your total monthly payment is while someone else is paying down the principal as well as while it's appreciating. So, I mean, there's a there's a lot of things to think about. And and I think it's also thinking about other markets. You know, I you know, I know it's not ideal per se in the event that we're trying to close a transaction here and close to us, but a lot of people are investing in other markets, you know, yeah. more rural markets in Utah or even out of the state. Um, I have someone that's bought three different properties specifically to central Florida, uh, where I got licensed solely for him in Florida so that we could take care of the financing and be able to build that for him because that's really where he feels that uh, the price point, the rents, you know, um, others are doing a lot of it in Arkansas, right? I mean, it's just like, you don't know exactly where the best place could be, but yeah. With our eyes open and we just start exploring, the more education, the more knowledge we have, the more confident we are to be able to start really looking into the options and the opportunities yeah. for us. Yeah, Arkansas, Ohio, North and South Carolina, um, yeah. some of these different places are, are the price point for the rent are, are, are great places. Let, let me let me back up to where you let, let's break down a couple of terms here real quick um, to break down delayed financing for us. What exactly is delayed financing? <clears throat> yep. So delayed financing, essentially in a scenario where if you're going to come to closing with cash, right, you're not getting per se a loan up front on that as far as, you know, your conforming standard loans. Mm -hmm. So when that happens, you know, especially if, say, as an example, I had somebody that was buying a house, um, they were going to use a specific program from a specific lender and it blew up, right? It mm -hmm. didn't work for them. And they said, we either need to back out or we need to know that you can get us this money back. And so in that circumstance, Basically, they paid cash outright, $400,000 for the house, drained other accounts, documented where the money came from. We have to document always where that money came from. And in that scenario, uh, we can do delayed cash out refinance. Now, commonly delayed financing is is on getting cash out. You have to meet a seasoning period. Fannie and Freddie have actually started enacting basically a 12-month policy of being on title before you can get that money back. Um, and before you can pull any of the equity out of it. In this scenario, we document it, go about, and then we're actually able to bring back, um, commonly on an investment property, up to 75% um, is where uh, the max cash out is at. But we're able to do that instantly, right? And, and oftentimes when someone goes under contract on a cash offer, you know, because we can be more competitive, you can offer, you know, more aggressive offer to get a better deal, do that. And then we can obviously bring back that money, put permanent financing behind it and get you that 75% of the money back so that you can obviously then continue to build, you know, you know, more net worth or build out uh, more within real estate. If you're trying to purchase more, more property. You're in El Paso did, essentially, you just kept paying cash yep. for homes, doing delayed cash, pulling 75% back, buying the next home cash with what was left and just, you know, rinse and repeat. And, and we yep. should mention the one I love about that story. And we told Jesse and I teach classes together and, and we've told the story. I don't know how many times now 
my favorite part of that story is not that this gentleman happened to have $100,000 lying around. He took it out of his primary home. He took it out of the equity yeah. in his primary residence. And yes, yes his payment on his primary residence went up because he had, he, he was leveraged a little bit more in his primary residence. But on the other side, like Jesse was saying, we took a long-term view and mapped this out and actually found that with all of the cash flow coming in from the properties, even though his primary resident payment was higher, his overall debt obligation was lower. And he had what now five, six, seven, eight properties to show for it. Yep, exactly. All appreciating, all being paid for by someone else. And the long term is then it's just kind of like the whole Ron Popeil thing, set it and forget it. Not that we're going to forget it because it's a lot of work being an investor and owning real estate. I mean, it's 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 not just a, a simple thing, but, you know, hypothetically, he's put everything in position where he wants to be. And what he's doing now is retaining that excess cash flow that he has. And, and you know, I mean, he, he was he was paying about thirty five hundred dollars on his primary residence. Um about 2800 before we did the, the cash out refinance or the equity that we pulled out of his property. He used that to continue to build all this out. Now where we're at, I think his monthly cash flow um, on all real estate is is somewhere around like 1500 bucks, right? So he mm -hmm. improved um, by about two grand a month in cash flow. Now he sets that $2,000 aside. And hypothetically, when you're purchasing in a market that's 100 to $150,000 using 20% down, he can essentially buy a new property using the DSCR program every single year. Mm -hmm. Right. And continue doing that. And, you know, it gets to a point where you finally are positioned there. Now, if the market changes, turns, you decide to file taxes a little bit more appropriately, like whatever you can do. Sure. All jump legally, into a, all legally. All legally, jumping into a, an actual conforming loan. Right. I mean, the question is going to be, well, is a DSCR loan? Are the rates as good? No, they're not going to be as good. You're not even qualified. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're a higher risk, but the risk is offset by the fact that that ratio of the payment offsetting the liability. And as long as that's the case, then on we go. And it's a very, very seamless in-house, fully delegated, completely underwritten, everything internally with me to where we don't have to go and jump through the hoops of, you know, per se brokering or doing anything crazy like that. Mm -hmm. so. Take me through, we hear a lot about assumable loans right now. I know, you know, we can only assume FHA and potentially VA loans. There's some, some requirements around that. Um, what are, what are some of the pros and cons of assumable loans specifically maybe for investors? Yeah, I mean, the the it, it gets tricky, especially on an, on investment, right? Because if you're buying something in as an investment, and I actually came across this the other day, and the and the 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 gentleman that was looking at being the investor was like, oh, because if we think about it, you can't assume an FHA loan unless you're gonna live in it as a primary residence, right? You're so you're gonna occupy it, yep. Yeah. Now, if you're willing to depart your current primary residence, turn that into an investment property and jump over to this other property and take it as a primary residence, if it's an FHA or a VA, awesome, you're in it, right? The caveat is that depending upon where these individuals are sitting financially on that, if they're trying to sell it for four hundred and they've got a $200,000 mortgage, that's an FHA loan that is an assumable loan and it's got an amazing 2.5% interest rate, yeah, I want it. But guess what? You've got to bridge the gap between that two hundred dollars to the $400,000 sales price and how are you going to do that? Mm -hmm. So, you know, our recommendation is always, obviously, that assumption starts with the current loan servicer of where that individual makes that mortgage payment to looking into it, finding out what exactly are the rules, the regulations, the stipulations that they are going to require to be able to make that assumable. Will they allow a second mortgage to be subordinated into a second lien position to be able to cover that? Likely going to require a minimum down from uh, the client in that scenario, maybe the three and a half as, a, as an FHA would require. Um, or if you have enough 
liquidity and can come in with the assets and put that money down and bridge that difference, then perfect, right? But the uniqueness to that is FHA or VA are always going to require it as a primary residence. So you'd have to really, you know, construct this. And I think that that's one of the biggest things is, is finding a team, you know, your mind, your brain rich in things very different than many real estate agents that I've ever worked with, you know, and that's not to make you smile or toot your horn, but truly you, you are special, (laughs) (laughs) but, and it's why you have a podcast and it's why you're preaching it to the world and you're passionate about it to promote it. Right. And, and I think you and I both do business in, in a similar way where we genuinely care. We genuinely care about, even if it doesn't result in any sort of a transaction, it's about educating individuals mm-hmm. and it's about giving them knowledge that otherwise we we didn't know, right? Would I have ever sold my first or my second home? No. Never. I myself every single day. We, we both have two that we regret that we never would have sold. Yep. Never, never, never would I have ever done that had I understood the ability to leverage and all the ins and the outs. And so I think anyone listening to this that has any sort of an interest, this is, it's an opportunity to be able to reach out and be able to just sharpen your skills, your knowledge, because if it's something that you're considering now, considering in six months, a year, two years, you don't know when that right property is going to pop up, right? You don't know when potentially, oh, I didn't even think about, you know, multifamily. Right. And holy cow, now multifamily, by the way, Fannie Mae now declaring that that uh, wants to buy a two, three or a four unit property. Now, obviously, living in it as the primary residence, five percent down is all it requires. Right. How there's no easier way to be able to get into becoming a landlord than buying multifamily. Right. One roof, one property. Your, your tenants are going to be on the best behaviors because you live right next door to them. Um, but there's just so many opportunities to be able to start building you know, investing in real estate in so many different ways. Yeah, I, I love that new that new rule from Fannie and Freddie on, on the 5% down multifamily. I, I had probably four people reach out to me the same day that that, that news broke and was like, mm-hmm. what does this mean for me? I said, well, let's talk about it because no, normally you either had to go FHA at 3.5% down and with all the, you know, the built-in mortgage insurance is going to be there forever as long as you have that loan. Or if you wanted to go conventional, you had to go, you know, 15, 20, 25% down Typically twenty five on a multifamily, I believe. Yeah, um, 15, 15 on a on a on a duplex, three or four unit was was going to be twenty five percent required. Yeah. You know, on a Fannie Mae. So, so yeah, it opens up a whole new whole new option for a lot of people who maybe didn't. Maybe they already have. Maybe their current house that they don't necessarily want to sell. Maybe that's an FHA loan, and now they can go buy a multifamily, move into it with a conventional, and keep their FHA on their current house. That's a really good point, and I think the other piece to think about as well is is all of a sudden now I've got two, three units that are basically able to be used to offset the payment to even qualify, right? Mm-hmm. You know, one mm-hmm. of the most wild things that I can think of and, and that I've seen actually happen once is each county has a different conforming loan limit, how much you can actually take on the different types of loan programs, whether it's conventional, FHA. In an FHA loan, you can put three and a half percent down to buy a fourplex. And mm-hmm. multifamily, as you get higher and higher in those units, you have a higher loan amount you can go up to. So you could go up to like a $2 million loan amount on an FHA with three and a half percent down, go buy a fourplex in the heart of Park City. Holy cow, right? I mean, like how amazing is that to be able to obviously then look at it? And of course, there's so many analytics, so many different details that you specifically as the real estate professional get to look at and say, you know, this rent or this property should do this. You know, what if you carry two of these as long-term leases? One of them is a short-term Airbnb and you can bring people in and out. Like we personally, myself, my family, we have a fourplex unit in like Podunk, Utah, rural Utah, right? All of them were long-term leases. The end of the initial 
purchase into it was a three and a half percent down primary residence for my father. After that took place, we ended up starting, we looked at, hey, let's convert these from long-term leases, which we were getting four to $500 a month um, on a long-term lease. As one tenant would move out, we would repair it, update it, upgrade it, turn it into short-term rental. It's rearing three to four times what a long-term lease would, right? And it's not to say that that's per se the example that's going to happen every single time, but those options exist. And yeah. that uh, the ability to do that, and then, of course, all the stuff that we'll talk about with how does it result into taxes? How are you, should you write your taxes? What should you write off on your taxes? What can we write back in? You know, for obviously, and that's the future, the plans, not just now, but a year from now five years from now? Like, what do you want to do? How do you want to build your portfolio? What do you want your retirement to look like? And I'll tell you, you know, real estate is one of the, you know, it's, it's tangible. It's right there in front of us. It's real property, which is why, you know, the vast majority of millionaires in this you know, world, I think it's somewhere like 90% have made their money off of real estate, right? Yeah, it, it's, yeah. But so many people don't do this because they don't know the right people to talk to. And, and it's hard to find that connection. And when you finally make that connection and see it, understand it, realize it, and are educated, then you're confident to move forward. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up your personal example there, your, your, your fourplex Airbnb in what you called Podunk, Utah. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's where people have this idea, I think, especially newer investors, of the, the type of property they want to own. They want to own the Park City condo or whatever it is. And maybe the numbers just don't work. And as we, as we talk about, I and mean, we'll talk about another episode about the, 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 the investment pyramid, um, we have to start with what the goal is and get very clear about what the goal is for the next property and long-term as well, but in overall, you know, investing strategy, but the next property, what's the goal? We get very clear on it. And then we have to look at what assets do we have available to us? We talk about buckets of money in, in season one, episode two, I believe. Um, buckets of money. What do we have available? And then third, we have to look at that and go, okay, what can I qualify for? Either at a price point or a payment, figure out those numbers. And then we got to figure out what type of property is going to help us accomplish that goal with the assets we have available. Only then do we get to go look in a particular location to find that property. And I, the story I use is, you know, I, I think I showed you this. There was a, a fourplex in, in price in February of 2022. Now think about February, 2022. Rates were still really, 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 really good, right? Investor rates probably under five still at that point. Yeah. And it was a fourplex in price and each unit was like two bedroom, one bath units renting for $700 a month. And you look at that and go, well, that's not sexy. Like there's a Walmart down the street, but like, why, why would I want to own a fourplex in price renting $700 a unit? I was unfortunately in a property at that point. I couldn't buy it myself, but I had a couple of clients that were like, eh, I'm good. What if I told you the price in that fourplex was $300,000 <laughs> and even at the current $700 a month in rent per unit, it would have cash flowed with 20% down about $800 a month. Fourplex in price, right? So to your point, like it might be podunk, whatever place you live in, where you think, why would anybody ever want to rent this, stay here for a night, whatever it is, but we can go anywhere and find the right property. That's why we love real estate. You can go to El Paso or Arkansas or Price, Utah or anywhere else and find the right property to help you meet your goal. And I think the interesting piece to that is price is two, two hours away. Mm -hmm. And from Salt Lake. It's, in, yep. 
from Salt Lake, it's incredibly expensive, right? I think the average purchase price um, or average home in Salt Lake is, I think, just a hair under 600000 right? Mm -hmm. Where are people going to go? People are able to work insanely remotely now, right? Like, people are going to start moving. And as populations increase, there's more demand, values appreciate greater as well, right? And so as that happens, you know, Utah's three, three and a half million people right? As we go to five to six million people, it's not going to be in the Salt Lake Valley. It's not going to be in the Utah Valley. It's not going to be in the Davis or, or Weber County Valleys. It's going to be north or south, right? Or maybe east, but there's nothing west of us. I mean, nobody wants to live out in the desert out there. But that all being said, like, you know, as that happens, values go up, values appreciate. And if you're if your cash flow in 800 in that scenario, plus the principal reduction, plus the appreciation, that house isn't worth, that fourplex isn't worth 300 anymore. It's worth 350, 375, 400, you know, who knows? But those are yeah. the, you know, the things I think to think about, especially as, as we expand and build out. And guess what? You don't have to be next to that property. There's property management companies that can do so much work for us to be able to structure and bring in tenants, you know, vet them, make certain the payments come in. In the event that there's an eviction process that needs to take place, they handle all that. Repairs, like it's all taken care of. So you don't have to be hypothetically right next to the property. Is it nice to be around the block because they tenants, you know, know that, you know, the red pickup truck that drives by is you and they're watching? Sure. You're going to take better care of it possibly. But that process, you know, is, is easily overcome um, with, you know, the tools that we have available to us in this market and in this industry. Let's go, let's go to qualifying for a minute. Qualifying income. Um, the, the, the sticky point of leaving your first house and going and buying your second one and um, leaving your first one as a, as a rental property, the, de the, the departing residential lease, it's required. You got to have it. How do people navigate? Okay. Like how do I get someone, how do I show my lender a lease agreement on my current house while also buying my next house? Like, how does that work? I, I, we got to have it. We got to have it for documentation purposes, but how do people navigate that process? Yeah. I mean, commonly the very first thing that we need to do, I mean, I'm I'm highly conservative when it comes to the process of getting anyone qualified. I want to make certain that everything's ironclad. I see the three, four, five hurdles that we could potentially come across, and we have you know exit routes or ways that we can go about it. So one of the biggest things that we're always going to look at is okay, what's the fair market rent? What should this property rent for that we're going to be departing? Right, and so what should that lease look like? I'll even try to give myself a little bit of a conservative side. If you're like, yeah, I think twenty two fifty. All right, can we do this at two thousand in the event for any reason? That that's the least amount that we need to take. And we get to basically there's deferred maintenance, different costs, things like that, that we know are going to be associated with that. So the way that lending guidelines rule is that basically we get to use 75% of that lease amount. So if you've got a mortgage payment that is, say, $1,500 on the property, and we get a $2,000 lease, 75% of $2,000 is $1,500. So essentially, that's a wash, right? Washes off that liability and that payment. Now, I don't have to have a lease immediately. Right, but I do have to have a lease to be able to get my final approval through underwriting. Before so we close on the next house, and you're going to commonly need a 12-month executed long-term lease and a security deposit to obviously justify and show that it's not, you know, ex, you know, your your buddy that's you know hypothetically signing a lease to to be able to get you through it. Right, um, can be your buddy, but let's just document it, show that obviously they put money down and that uh, we have an executed 12-month lease. But in doing that, once we have that, that's what we use to factor out that out. Obviously, you use 75% of that to avoid that liability. And from there, these are little things that you're like, oh, that's how it works. Oh, that's how it's going to work on the next property potentially. Now, 
once we start doing this over and over and over and over again, after a year, you're going to start filing this on what's known as your Schedule E on your tax returns, right? And so that Schedule E is going to show what you brought in in income, what you're depreciating, what your expenses, your costs, all those things are, and it factors out to an overall dollar amount that you actually show in income on it. And that number then is used dollar for dollar um, to show going forward to be able to offset that payment. Right. So also a tricky spot because a lot of times people, nobody wants to pay taxes. Nobody wants to see that they got to pay 10, 15, 20 grand at the end of the day um, when taxes come due on October 15th for most people in these circumstances because we stretch everything out. But, um, you know, it's it's an important piece and, and part of the process and the steps that we take and the reason why we have professionals, you know, CPAs, you know, lenders that understand how to look and analyze taxes, especially before you go and file them to make certain that we're obviously um, showing the incomes and, and writing the losses that you're supposed to, um, to make certain that we can qualify in it. And it meets the spectrum of qualifying for the next deal, short of using, say, a DSCR loan where, you know, have at it. If you've got a ridiculous amount of write-offs and losses on something, then so be it. But it can come back to bite you if you don't do it appropriately, you know? Yeah. Doc, how about let's let's move to the, the house we're now purchasing. Um how about potential ADU income, whether it's a mother-in-law, maybe it's different. Maybe it's a mother-in-law basement apartment. Maybe it's a detached ADU, ADU unit. Um, can we use potential income or current income that's already be, that's already there to help qualify for the next property? Yeah, so those are, that gets interesting, right? Because, you know, ADU income, what's known as border income, you know, some of those are going to require a history of showing that you have that, especially if it's not zoned as a multifamily. Now, there are some areas, especially down in Utah County, that single-family homes actually have, can be, um, I believe it's American Fork, Provo, in those areas. They'll say, hey, no, you've got a mother-in-law and your main unit, even though that's not a duplex or uh, considered or zoned that way. They'll actually, in that document and from the city, we actually have taken two leases, an upstairs and a downstairs lease on a single family residence and use that to be able to qualify to offset, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, but a lot of it's going to be based off of history, especially border income where you're like renting rooms and things like that to show and document that. Most people don't file that on their Schedule E. They don't show that as income, but that's really how you're going to look at it and be like, okay, yeah, you do have that history, right? We can document that, show that. But, you know, um, there's a lot of rules, a lot of things that are changing where there's not a lot of land left per se to be able to build on, say, in the Salt Lake Valley. There's going to be a lot of rules. I think a lot of different um, loan programs and changes that are going to really promote individuals to build ADUs, right, as as basically long-term rental um, or, you know, to to provide other housing for for more people where otherwise there's, you know, a lack of lack of housing, a lack of inventory. Yeah. Let's talk about Airbnbs, short-term rentals, let's, let's call them what they are. They're short-term rental properties. I, I find this beautiful, you know, lakefront property condo, let's say even has 12 months of history of, of rental income. Can I use the short-term rental income to qualify? So commonly the way that's going to work now, I mean, depending upon occupancy and how we're going to try to do this, right? I mean, if you can buy this as a second home, second homes are always going, I mean, it's a way of investing into real estate, but a second home is always going to force you to qualify for the entirety of the mortgage payment without any offsetting income, right? So when it comes down to that, um, that's something that if we can do it, let's do it. Better terms, right? Better, better loan terms, better loan level price adjustments. Second home is less risk than per se an investment property. Um, and in doing that, you have to frequent it at some point in time during the year. Now, if you can obviously short term rental that, I mean, 
what's the best of, I mean, best of all worlds, you have a lake house that you get to use and set your weekends. And then you have other people come in and offset that monthly payment for you. Right. But in those circumstances, commonly, you're going to have to, um, you know, be able to, to, to qualify based on any second residence or a vacation property off of that. So it gets tricky in those scenarios. You know, if there's other aspects and ways um, in that scenario, if you're going to purchase it as an investment, even though it has been a short term rental, you're still going to get a 1007, the uh, rental schedule um, off of the appraisal. And we'll use that to deplete by 75% and use that to offset the qualifying uh, metric to be able to get into the house. Okay, so so even if your intention is a short-term rental, you still get the 1007, the market rate rents, still take 75% of that and at least give me something to offset mm -hmm. maybe that 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 payment, even if I don't in, ever intend to long-term rental. You're saying if worst-case scenario, we talk a lot about best-case, worst-case scenario here. Um, worst-case scenario, I could long-term rent it, and this is what the market rates are, so you're going to give me credit essentially for 75% of that. Where do you feel like the opportunity is right now for, from a, a lending perspective, a financing perspective for, for investors? Is there, is there a sweet spot? Is there a, a program, a, a strategy? Like where, where's the sweet spot right now, now that the market has shifted on rates and, and, and quite honestly demand? Yeah. I mean, from what I've seen in my market in, in, in what a lot of people are doing, I mean, honestly, multifamily is a huge piece. Right. I, th I think that that's a huge opportunity. Um, obviously, looking at things from a little bit different perspective, cash flow is not as strong right now as it has been. It can't be with interest rates. Um, so looking at that, trying to have something as a primary residence is 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 key if you can do it. N not everyone wants to, nor does their spouse want to pack up and move to a fourplex when you <laughs> I, I would never not going to happen in my household either. Um, but in doing that, I think that it. It's finding the right market. I think the number one thing is being prepared, being educated, and being in a position where you've got a loan application pushed through. For me personally, like a lot of lenders will say, hey, if you're not willing to commit, if you're not willing to run credit, if you're not willing to do this, 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 and this, we don't want to talk to you. No, 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 no. Complete a loan application. Let's mock the scenario for you. Like, I'd love to get credit so we know really where we sit, but let's poise everything and have everything positioned and ready so that at any moment in time when Richard says, hey, there's a fourplex in Carbon County that's running at 700 a unit, cash flowing 800, right now, we need to make the decision to go, right? Or, hey, we can even potentially get this thing for 10% less if we can do a cash offer. Here's how we can do this and structure the financing behind so that you can get that money back. You know, um, I think, you know, really the, those scenarios, the DSCR, um, some of those programs and, and here's the deal, like being completely honest, different programs in different places, banks and credit unions at times may offer a scenario like no PMI 10% down on an investment. Now I can't guarantee you how that's going to turn out because the cash out delayed cash out, um, refinance that I did for those clients that said we got declined. They were $700,000 W-2 employees. They had one loss on their taxes and they were declined by the bank. So it may not, it's not an easy process at times to go some of those routes. And so again, having a good, better, best scenario, backup plans, a, a lender that can obviously expedite the process and close and say, you know, seven to 10 days if needed, you know, as long as you're working side by side with them, giving them what they need. But if you've already done that process and your due diligence to make sure you have the application, everything ready to rock and roll and being prepared. But, you know, I think all those things combined and, and being just cognizant of what's happening, where the market's at and being prepared to jump and pounce as soon as that, that right property pops up, you know, starting early, preparing early. No one really wants to talk to a lender. Let's be honest, right? Like, the lender is always the not not the fun guy to talk to or fun gal to talk to. They're always asking for documentation and taxes and pay stubs and 
the realtors gets to be the fun people. We get to show the houses and, you know, things like that. But that said, it is supremely important, I believe, to make sure you're prepared. From a realtor standpoint, I don't want to, I don't want to show you a house you can't afford. You fall in love with it. Yes, this is the one. This is perfect. It meets our goal. It's in the right place. We can, you know, rent this out. We know what the rents are. And all of a sudden now, now we both have to be the bad guy and say, you can't qualify for this. You wrote off all your yeah. money, you wrote off all your income on your taxes or, you know, whatever the situation is, we can't do it. So yeah, absolutely. Starting early, being prepared. So when that opportunity does come along, maybe there's a few things we still need to do, like in the interim while we're under contract. But for the most part, we know where we can look, what price point, what our goal is, you know, what, what's going to meet that, what's going to meet yeah. that goal. And, um, and I think I think it's important as well, Rich, and that you know, be prepared and being prepared. It's not just what you know the next loan, but it's like financially, like asset wise, capital wise. Why? What? What is the game plan? And truly positioning and setting a HELOC or home equity line of credit on your current primary residence because it's your primary residence, and having that set and in stone is a killer and an important piece to have because you now have access to be able to tap into that money. Now, yeah, granted, we have programs that can get it for you exceptionally fast. But that in itself is is potentially going to give you different terms because it's going to be your investment. It's going to be um, take time, right? And time commonly is is a huge benefit in a real estate transaction if you have it on your side and you can promote and push your offer over someone else's because you can do it faster. Well, if you have your HELOC open, you can borrow money from yourself rather than from somebody else. And and even with the variable rates potentially on your HELOC, you're probably going to get a better deal than borrowing hard money right now. Just so everybody's aware. Yeah, hard money used to be able to get, I don't know, six, eight percent because they were borrowing it themselves on their own HELOC at three or four percent. Well, now the HELOC rates are eight, nine, ten, twelve percent. Guess what, friend? Like hard money lenders are now charging more as well. So yeah, yeah, if you can borrow from yourself or at least have it available to yourself, the opportunity comes along, you can be more flexible with that. Um, let's 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 go here to finish. Um, our our house flipper friends. Um, what sort of options or or strategies? Are, are there for them either on the purchase and the rehab or looking ahead to when they're done selling it or maybe worst case scenario market shift, right? I, I see a lot of houses on the market in our market where they were flips and I saw this a lot last year. They were flips being bought in, you know, first, second quarter of 2022. They took three, four, five months to do the rehab and uh-oh, they're all of a sudden selling into a market that didn't have three and a half percent rates anymore. They had six and a half percent rates. And all of a sudden they were scrambling. So in some cases it made more sense to hold them as, as long-term rentals rather than flipping. But what, what would you, what advice would you have for, a, you know, someone wanting to flip a home or a couple homes from a, from a financing perspective? Yeah. I mean, I'm you just like myself, incredibly analytical, right? Understanding and making sure that we know all the details exactly where it's at. And, and what is the, if there isn't an exit option, what does that look like financially for us to make sure that we're in a spot for that? Now, I mean, there's plenty of programs out here, home style renovations and different programs that are capable of being able to get you into a property, allow you to be able to actually take a surplus of money to be able to actually then generate and build in. No luxury items, nothing crazy, you know, stuff like that. But well, you can do in the rehab costs. Building the rehab yeah, costs. Yeah, yeah, bring in the rehab costs. You know, you see so many of these like HGTV and DIY, and it's like, oh, but if we can get it less, then we have all this excess money. Uh, not really, because you're you're financing it, right? You don't have this chunk of change. But in some of these programs, those options exist. You build it out. Now realize as well, though, if you buy something and uh, you know, as an example, if you get into it and you buy it as a primary, you do it as an FHA, and your plan is to flip it, it's not the end of the world, but there's also a rule. Right, you cannot sell or flip that property within, I believe, it's 95 days, or write that new contract before then. 
So that in itself can limit you. So it's just, there's a lot of boundaries that go into this, but we obviously need to look at it, I think, from a true analytical standpoint, make certain that we know exactly what it is, what the plans are, what the, you know, exit route is, and if it can't exit in that regard, then we're prepared to be able to potentially hold that for an extra six months or a year or two years. But I think in front of that, it's, you know, I know a lot of people that that have done this and they've taken 16, 18, 20% hard money loans um, and, and actually even exercise the fact of, the individual that that they're carrying over and putting them individually on title, you know, on on that current property that they're leveraging off of to 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 secure them, and in those scenarios, that's not the smartest way to get your money, right? It's not the the, the most economical way to be able to jump into it and do it. So making sure that you're also in a good position. I mean, you can look at potential ARM products, right? An adjustable rate mortgage, you know, five, seven, 10. And most of conventional, um, you know, um, ARM products now don't just adjust on a yearly basis. They adjust every six months, right? Mm -hmm. So it's something to think about when you're looking at, you know, overall what the plans are, what are the long-term plans, what's the investment and, and, you know, but you also have to have the escape clause in the event that it doesn't factor out or work specifically to your advantage uh, if the market's to shift because nobody can control that. Yeah. Uh, were you were you talking when you were talking about the, the rehab cost being built in? Is that, is that a 203K loan or is that a different product? Or if it's different, can you talk about a 203K loan? specifically? maybe yeah. is 203K specifically for owner occupants or is that can that be investors as well? So that's going to be specific on an FHA in a 203K, but you're going to have home style renovation. That's going to be Fannie's product. Freddie Mac's going to have their own product as well, right? And each of them, different parameters. And of course, when we look at Fannie versus Freddie, you know, there's so there's little nuances, but it may make more sense to go one, one conventional conforming agency over another because the rules are a little bit different and can benefit. And so when looking at that, you know, um, each of them have just different parameters. To what extent can you take, you know, how much can you build into it? You know, having all your plans. But again, it's all about preparation because you're not just going to go say, hey, I want an extra $50,000 on this property so that I can buy it and um, do this rehab on it. Um, you got to have plans. You have to have estimates. You have to have, you know, you know, a lot of details in place to be able to know and provide the appraiser what's going to happen. How is this going to change the value of the product or the home? Uh, because that's what they're going to base the value and, and, and basically establish the, the overall worth of it so that we then as a lender can look at it and say, okay, with these improvements, all this stuff completed, done, taken care of, this is where it's going to fall. Now, if we can do it that way and position it, we can fall inside the box to, to, to meet the lending guidelines and, and get approved for that. That's an amazing thing. Right. And then obviously you go that route. That way you're, you know, I think a home style rental loan, maybe it's like a three, three eighths to a half percent, maybe higher in rate as it relates to it, or maybe a little higher cost. But that's significantly better than peeling an extra 10 or 15 or 20 percent of, of second mortgage money off of your property at 10 percent or a 12 percent or mm. even worse as a hard money loan, you know, at a 15, 18, 20 percent or putting it on credit cards, which is the root of all evil. And, yeah. Yeah. and you know, and, and here's the deal, people are, are tapping into that and, and some are even because of the golden handcuffs aren't leaving their primary residence. They're they're building out their current primary residences to give them the new footprint and the square footage and the extra extra better bath because they their family has grown, you know, in the last few years by a couple of kids. And now it's like, hey, what do we do? You know, I mean that's the thing is I know this is primarily focused on investing and building that. 
but taking equity, building it, increasing your footprint, creating, increasing your, your GLA or your above square footage, like that is going to increase the value of your home as well and exponentially benefit you in the long run. So there's, there's just accesses to ways that you can do this. Right. And, and not lose your current loan or access it with a second mortgage and, you know, occupancy. And there's so many avenues that we can take as far as investing into real estate um, with a brilliant mind like yourself and, and, and hopefully quite a somewhat brilliant mind of myself I'm to be able to build the opportunity. I'm about to give you some credit, but keep going. <laughs> no, no, I'm good. So I just, you know, I think that it, the first step is a phone call. Right. And, and it, it's always that you don't know who to call. Um, and now you do. And and beyond that, it's it's genuine, reasonable, non-pressured information and knowledge so that you can start digesting that. You can start thinking about it and knowing how you want to go about it and asking more questions and having us there as a support staff and team to be able to build that for you whenever it's the right time, you know, for, for your financial situation. Yeah, no, that's perfect. And I, I'm going to come back to you here in just a minute here and ask you where people can find you, get a hold of you, and also if we've missed anything. Um, but I hope as you're listening, I hope you have grasped in some way how important it is to have not only a, a, a good and ethical loan officer or mortgage broker, but also one who is creative and, and knows the different products and strategies available to you and is willing to sit down with you, even if you're not ready to buy a house right now, and, and sit down with you and make a plan with you uh, as part of your, your inner circle of, of trusted advisors, as maybe your financial advisor or your insurance agent, attorney, hopefully real estate agent, you know, those other people. Um, before I come to you, I, I taught a class to a group of teenagers two weeks ago, and we were talking about, you know, all things real estate. And, and I was thinking about how do I, how do I bring real estate down to their level? They're not in a position to buy a house, probably not. I mean, they're 13, 14, 15 years old. Uh, but how do I, how do I help them understand this stuff and the importance of it? And so I, I brought in a, a monopoly board and some Monopoly pieces. I laid the Monopoly board on the table and I asked him, who likes to play Monopoly? And we're talking about like, how does Monopoly relate to real estate? Here's the four rules. The first rule is, and we've talked about this a lot today, is you have to know the rules of the game. You have to know the rules of the loan programs, the strategies, you know, the differences between Fannie and Freddie. And I'm not saying as an investor, if you're listening to this, I'm not saying you have to know the rules, but you need to know people who know the rules to help you be able to play by the rules. Second is have a long-term plan. We talked about that. You gotta have a long-term plan. The third one is you can't be afraid to invest. You can't be afraid to buy something. Oh, interest rates are high. They're higher. Yep, they are. That's the reality of our market. Does the property still fit your objectives? Does it still work? Does it still help you meet your goals? Short-term, long-term, whatever it is. Can't be afraid to invest. If you are afraid to invest in Monopoly, you are the first one out of the game because you just end up paying money out to everybody else because you don't own anything yourself. The fourth one is um, location. Location matters. It, it matters where you're going to buy your fourplex. Maybe it is Carbon County where prices are cheaper versus Salt Lake County where a fourplex may cost you two or three times as much as going two hours away. That's going to drastically affect your ability to cash flow or, or maybe you don't have a down payment for it. Um, Jesse, what have we missed and where can people find you if they have more questions? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's amazing that your analogy of 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 monopoly coming back. It I mean, it honestly almost ties everything that we discussed in right. All the pieces, all the parts. You know, and if you don't invest, then you don't have other money um, of the cash flow to be able to continue to build it. Right. I don't think we also start at times. Sometimes you think, oh, I got to go do this. Right. Very rarely are you purchasing an investment property that's more valuable than your primary residence. Not not that it's not going to potentially happen. Um, 
But there, and there's so many various ways to be able to invest. You know, one of the best investments that I ever made is land, right? Last sure. land I sold, I, I sold it for seven times more money than I bought it for. Sure, absolutely. They're not making any more of it, right? Yeah, not making any more of it. But there's different ways to think about it and be outside the box. And I think the biggest thing is, is to not be afraid, you know? open that conversation. If it's something that you've dreamed of and you have the vision of it, we will help to answer questions and identify the strategies and the process and the ways to be able to get to the finish line um, and have the plan and, and be a resource, not now, but forever, right? Um, easiest way for you to reach me, and, and it's the way that I would want everyone to always reach me is directly on my cell phone, right? I don't have a ringback tone. I don't even use my office line. I use my cell phone because I'm available to you. When you need me, um, if you text me at midnight, may or may not happen, but it'll be get back to you in the morning. But my cell phone is 801-499-2400. That's 801-499-2400. Uh, I won't give you my email address because it will take the entire remaining 10 minutes of our time because we'll, I have a very we'll long name. Show notes. Yeah, we'll put both in the show notes. But absolutely. But, you know, we want to be a resource to you, a simple text uh, and a simple conversation to at least start that um, so that you can start dreaming right? And, and making plans and, and building your net worth for the future. And your license in other states other than Utah, like you mentioned, you got licensed in Florida because you had a client buying properties in Florida. So don't be afraid. Yeah. If you're listening to outside of Utah, don't be afraid to reach out to them. And by the way, Castle and Cook is nationwide. So they can, he can put you in touch with a, a great loan officer in another state if, if we need to. Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Jesse, I appreciate it. You know this. We could talk real estate all day long. Some days we do. <laughs> uh, I appreciate you coming on, though, um, for the wealth of knowledge. If you're listening to this, I hope this has been helpful. I hope you've walked away with a strategy or two or an idea or two that will help you either get started or maybe keep moving if you feel a little bit stuck right now with, with where to go next. Um, would love if you'd leave a review, share with somebody. That's how we're building our, our audience here, obviously. Um, we're trying to bring you episodes that are valuable to you, particularly as the market is shifting. And I, I think this has been a good one. So Jesse, thank you so much. And uh, we'll see you next time. My name is Richard Jones, your wealth creating realtor. This has been House Money and we'll see you next time.